you uh, have a copy of the Bible, uh, please turn over to Revelation chapter 2, where we're going to be today in our sermon. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it printed for you there in the bulletin. Uh, This summer series we're calling, What Would Jesus Say to the Church? And we're focusing on the seven messages that he delivers to seven different churches in uh, the first century in Asia Minor, which is now called Turkey. In each of these seven pretty important cities, uh, he addresses the Christians there in different ways. And I think from those messages, we can learn what Jesus says to the church today. Uh, Many scholars believe that uh, the way these messages are written, it's as if he's not only addressing those seven churches then, but he's addressing the church in all ages, because here is covered almost everything that the church would need to know in all the ages of time. And so this morning, let's pay attention to what he says to Thyatira. Thyatira. Uh, We're going to read verses 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan... To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him The morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's holy word. Amen. When we hear uh, the word holy, I think a lot of different things come to our minds. And I was thinking about this this week. Most of the things that come to our minds when we hear that word are not very positive. Uh, Just consider a few. Maybe some of these uh, come to your mind. Sometimes we think holy. I know what that means. Holier than thou. That's the person who thinks they are better than everybody else. They think they're super spiritual, and so they look down their nose at everybody because nobody's on their level. That's negative, right? That's not good. That's not what the Bible means by holy. Uh, Or secondly, we think holy. I know what that is. Dull as dirt. Right? That's the person who has no fun. And he has a sneaking suspicion that someone else might have fun and he's out to stop it. That's holy. That's also not what the Bible exactly means by holy. 
Then there's a third one. It's a little bit more right than the other two, but it's nevertheless wrong and at a deep level. And that's this. Holy, I know what that is. It's scary. Uh, that's what God is. It's scary. That's the right part, actually. The Bible does say God's holiness is very scary, not safe at all. But here's the wrong part. I, because it's scary, I could never approach it. There is no way for someone like me, there's no way in the world for someone like me to ever come near to God and say, I'm going to stay as far away as possible so I don't get struck down. I think that those three things actually summarize a whole lot of what comes into our mind when we hear the word holy, and yet those, none of those things are exactly what the Bible means about the theme which the Bible speaks probably more about than any other theme. If you look at the passage this morning that I just read to you, the word holy doesn't appear anywhere in the passage. And yet, the whole message that God gives to Thyatira is about holiness. The whole thing's about holiness. The city of Thyatira was not as um, prominent as some of the other cities we've read about. Uh, Ephesus was like the New York City of Asia. Pergamum was like the Washington, D.C. of Asia. Uh, Smyrna was a very uh, prominent you know, coastal city. Thyatira was more inland. It was in the valley. Uh, it did not have a lot going for it except strategic location. It was at the intersection of several valleys. And so it was the gateway between the coast and the inland parts of Asia. And so anybody who wanted to trade from the coast to the inland had to pass through Thyatira. Thyatira was not an important political city or religious city, but it was an important commercial city. It was the place where people made money. And so Jesus addresses the, the church at Thyatira and says, the main goal of your life is not financial or temporary gain. In fact, if you follow that, it's probably going to lead you to follow what he calls this woman Jezebel. What you really need is to remember my goal for your life, which is that you might share in my holiness. Look at your bulletin. Uh, there are three things Jesus shows us today and shows to the city of Thyatira. First of all, he shows us the picture of holiness. Secondly, he warns us about the obstacle to holiness. And lastly, he encourages us towards the means of holiness. Let's look at each of those. First of all, there's the picture of holiness. Uh, Jesus uh, paints a picture first by painting a picture of himself and then by painting a picture of what he sees in the church at Thyatira, the positive part of what he sees. Look at verses 18 and 19. First, there's the picture of Jesus. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's the picture of Jesus there. And then that picture is shot through with holiness. Uh, even though the word holy is not in there, this is without a doubt a picture of Jesus Christ as the Holy One. His eyes like a flame of fire. In, in Hebrew thought, the eyes were uh, really a window into the person in their heart. In fact, we have a saying for that in English, the eyes are the windows to the soul, right? And that's the way the Hebrews thought about it. Uh, you might have heard Jesus say one time, if your eye is good, your whole body will be good. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be bad. And that's what he was talking about. The eye is the window to the heart of hearts. And here it says, Jesus, as the Son of God, at the heart of hearts, is burning like a flame of fire. It's a reminder, really, of God himself. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, God is presented as a fire. 
Remember Moses, the bush that was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And God said to Moses when he got to that bush, don't come any closer. Take your shoes off your feet because the place you're standing is holy ground, right? That's fire, holiness, purity. Jesus is pure at the very core of who he is. But also, Jesus is holy in what he does. His feet, it says are like burnished or fine or polished bronze. This is another great Old Testament image. In fact, both of these pictures are combined together in Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel sees the vision of the Son of Man who will reign over all the world, he sees him as one whose eyes are like fire and whose hands and feet are like bronze. Jesus is picking right up where Daniel left off and saying, I'm that one. My feet are bronze. What does it mean to have bronze feet? Solid, heavy, stable, immovable, shiny, glory. I mean, all those things. Jesus is saying, inside and out, I am holy, holy, holy. Why? Because I'm the Son of God. As the angel Gabriel said to Mary, Mary, you will have a child, but there will be no man involved because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And so the child born of you will be called holy because he will be the Son of God. Here you have it, Jesus describing himself as holy, holy, holy. If you're not familiar with, maybe you're not familiar with this, as Christians we believe Jesus is nothing less than God himself. We got it, you got it, and that's a very, very main thing that we believe. We believe there's only one God, and that one God made all the world and everything in it. And that same God continues to rule over and direct the world. But this one God has existed eternally in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it was the Son, that person, that second person of the Trinity, who was made flesh, came and dwelt among us to show us in visible form what the holiness of God is like. And so Jesus shows Thyatira. But then he says, look at this, this is so important. He says in verse 2, I know your works. And he says something positive about them. He's really explaining how, and again, the word holy doesn't appear in verse 2. And yet, what Jesus explains is holiness in action. He's explaining how the people of Thyatira had begun to share in his own holiness. I know your works. Look at what it says. I know your works. Your faith and your love. That describes internal qualities. Love, just simply loving God, simply delighting in Him and desiring Him. Faith, simply trusting God. Those are two internal heart things. Those are the things God is most after in your life. Faith and love in the heart. Those are the definitions of what holiness looks like in a human being. And then also outwardly, I know your service, which is the same word where we get the word deacon from. He says, I know that you know how to deacon. Uh, deacon can be used as a verb. I, I know that you know how to serve one another, and I also know your faithful endurance. This, again, describes outwardly what holiness looks like in the human life. It's faith and love in the heart. Outwardly, it's service to God and others, and it's patient endurance for God no matter what happens. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I look at you, church, and I'm proud of you because the holiness that I have is a holiness that you have begun to share, and you're continuing to share it in greater and greater measure. You see that? At the end of of verse 2, he says, your latter works exceed your firsts. 
Isn't that a great thing? This is the opposite, by the way, of Ephesus, where, where Jesus had said, you lost your first love. You used to be better than you are now. And sometimes that's the way it happens for us as Christians. You know, we, we used to be stronger than we are, and sometimes we decline. But here Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, you're not declining, you're increasing. You're becoming more and more holy. This is a moment like a proud papa. Jesus looking at the church and recognizing the fruit of his work, as if the church is a garden that he planted, and here are the blossoms, and here is the fruit, and here are the vegetables, and they are sweet to his taste. Do you ever look at your kids, and you see something in them that you don't like, and then you recognize, wait a minute, they got that from me? They learned that word from me? Oof. They learned that attitude from me? Oh, man, that stings, doesn't it? That happens a lot. But then there are those moments. These are what makes parenting so rewarding. When you look at your kids and you see something good. You see something that you've labored to teach them. You've worked hard to model. And finally, wow, they're doing it. And Jesus has that message for his church. I want you to know something. When Jesus looks at the church, he doesn't just look with the eyes of criticism. He doesn't just look with the eyes of finger wagging. When Jesus looks at his church that is sharing together in his holiness, he looks with the eyes of pride and joy. Because he sees in his church, when the church is growing in holiness, he sees in them his own handiwork. And in that holy handiwork, the holy God rejoices. There's a beautiful place in the Old Testament in Zephaniah where it says, God rejoices over you with singing. Did you hear that? He says to Israel, God rejoices over you, his people, with singing and with shouts of joy. And here Jesus is singing over his church. But we have to understand what makes Jesus sing over us. Versus what doesn't make him sing, because he just doesn't just sing over his church, he does also criticize. But what makes him sing? Holiness shared. Let me ask you a question. What is your number one goal in life? What's your number one goal today, right now? What's your number one expectation for life? What's the thing you want more than anything else? What's the thing you're planning for more eagerly than you're planning for anything else? What gets you up in the morning? What drives you in the way that you're parenting your kids? Is it anything less than holiness unto God? Is it anything less than a whole heart and life devotion completely more and more, latter works exceeding the first, full devotion to God who is holy? Let me tell you, if it's anything less than that, it's less than what Jesus wants. It's less than what Jesus is after in you, and it's less than what Jesus is after in this place, in this church. Little goals are good, but little goals are little goals. There's only one goal that can supersede all goals. 
And that is that sinners like me and you would come close to a holy God and by coming close begin to share in that holiness. Begin to experience and taste what it's like to be wholly devoted to God even as he is wholly devoted to himself. Even as he is holy within himself. In fact, the, the root word for holy in the Bible is just simply the word separate. Separate. Different. Set apart. Unlike other things. God is unlike everything, right? He's, he is holy. He's the only one that truly is that way. When we share his holiness, that means we're separated unto him. We're devoted. And that is the reason why Jesus died on the cross. Someone says, hold on, I thought Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. Yes, he did. But why in the world did he forgive your sins this morning? If your sins are forgiven this morning, why did he forgive your sins? There's only one reason. That you would share in his holiness. No holiness, no heaven. You say, hold on. I thought we were saved by grace, not works. We are. We're saved by grace to be holy. <laughs> Therefore, no holiness, no heaven. And holiness by grace. I'm just quoting the Bible, Hebrews, where it says, Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. We need to be pursuing it. When we pursue it, Jesus looks over our lives and he smiles and he sings. Don't you want that? That's the first thing. Now, secondly, uh, Jesus warns them and us about the obstacle to holiness. And there, there are perhaps many obstacles to growing in holiness, but there's one big one. Uh, if you'll look there at uh, verses 20 to 23, uh, you'll see it. In fact, it comes at the very beginning of verse 20. But I have this against you, one thing against you. It's as if Jesus is looking over the garden of the church of Thyatira, and he sees all these blossoms, all these fruit, and he just sees one weed, one stray weed. But that weed bothers him tremendously because he knows that one weed could tank it all. So we, we got to pay attention. What is that weed? Look at it. That you tolerate. Did you hear that? Here's the weed. That you tolerate. Tolerate what? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is really not, but she calls herself that. And she teaches and seduces people to practice sexual immorality and idolatry. The two big sins of the culture that were popular in Thyatira. She's trying to get you to just be like the rest of the world. She's telling you it's okay to be like the rest of the world. Now, now, probably what's in view here is an actual woman in the church, an actual, probably an actual individual. Uh, her name probably was not Jezebel. Uh, that would probably be too coincidental. <laughs> uh, in fact, the, if you don't know, the, the name Jezebel comes from the Old Testament again. Uh, this passage, by the way, is full of Old Testament. That's why I keep bringing it up. Uh, in the Old Testament, Jezebel, it was the wife of King Ahab, and she was a very, very wicked woman. Okay, she was a very wicked woman. Uh, she encouraged Ahab and all the rest of the nation of Israel to do those two things, to commit sexual immorality and to worship idols. And she was very successful at it. Uh, Ahab was passive as a husband and as a king. He just basically did whatever Jezebel told him to do. Uh, if you go read the story, you see that, right? He was very passive. She really ruled the country while they were together. 
And here, this woman's name is not Jezebel, but you get the point, right? She's like Jezebel. She's a woman within the church. Apparently, she had been a member of the church. She had been a professing believer, but she went wrong. She started thinking too highly of herself. She started calling herself a prophetess, and she started encouraging people. Since you're, this probably went like this. Since you're a Christian saved by grace, don't worry about all the rules. Rules aren't a big deal. Holiness is not a big deal. You can fit right in the culture of Thyatira. Thyatira, this culture of commerce, this culture of business, where every business transaction was done um, you know, based on idolatry. I mean, just think about this. The chamber of commerce of the city of Thyatira was, was in a temple. Not to God, but to some other foreign God. And every time that a, a business transaction was planned, every time that a deal was made, it was always made usually over a sacrifice to another God. Not only that, but we know very much that the pagan worship of the other gods often devolved into very crazy parties with crazy sexual immorality going on. And so it wasn't a secret why she was encouraging them to do those two things because those are the things that would have kept them right at the center of the economic life of their city. If they chose not to do those two things, they would all of a sudden be outside of the center of the economic life of their city. It would have cost them. And so she's coming up saying, hey, you don't have to pay that cost. You're, you're saved by grace after all. Go to the chamber of commerce, make the sacrifice, eat it, get a little wild at the party, come to church Sunday, ask for forgiveness. That's the way this thing works. And Jesus says, here's the weed in your garden. You tolerate that stuff. You should have told her a long time ago to be quiet. You should have kicked her out of the church a long time ago. But you didn't. You tolerate it. You let it go. You are becoming like Ahab. Just letting her get her way, teach what she wants to teach, and carry astray whoever she wants to carry astray. Now, I want to be clear here. It's not the fact that she was a woman that's got Jesus upset. Okay, This is not an anti-woman thing. It just so happens that she was a woman. I believe that even if it was a man teaching these things, Jesus would have said the same thing. You tolerate that man, Ahab, maybe he would have said. But here it was, it just happened to be a woman. And, and Jesus is equal opportunity. <laughs> uh, Jesus is equal opportunity, men and women. Both men and women are sinners, y'all. Right? Both men and women need the same Savior. And both men and women need the same confrontation from that Savior when they go into sin. And here Jesus is not ashamed to look at Jezebel and say, You're lying. And the whole church, you should have put her out of the church a long time ago, but you didn't. She's revealing herself not to be a genuine believer, and you just turned the other cheek. You turned your eye away. Now, here, here's the problem, for us anyway. When we hear the word holy, we think, ugh, that sounds terrible. But when we hear the word tolerance, we think, ah. That's what I want to be. Isn't that right? Our culture is not very much different than the one in Thyatira. Holiness, ooh. That makes people mean, boring, dull, ooh. Tolerance, that makes people exciting. 
And yet notice what Jesus says. He's not saying tolerance is always bad, but he is saying that in some cases it is bad. Uh, Can't you think about things in life like that that aren't always bad, but sometimes they are? I mean, think about it. I mean, there's a season for everything, if you think about it. There are, there are times to do something, and then there are times not to do it. For example, shouting isn't always bad, but if one of you were to shout out right now, that'd be kind of bad. It would disrupt the service. But shouting isn't always bad. If you go out, you know, to the football game, shouting's great. But right now, a shout would startle me, I'll, I'll be honest. And it would, quite th- it would throw me off my, my thoughts here, you know. Same with tolerance. Our culture says tolerance is the only good. In fact, you can't say anything's good or bad except saying tolerance is good. And intolerance is bad, which if you think about it, it's kind of self-contradictory. Because if you you can't say anything's good or bad, how can you even say tolerance is good? And intolerance is bad. It's just really kind of a strange thing, but that's nevertheless where our culture is. Tolerance is good in all things. Tolerate everything. Tolerate everybody. And Jesus says, no, tolerate rightly, but do not tolerate like this. It is a weed in the garden to tolerate the woman Jezebel, and it's an evil thing to tolerate false teaching, and it's a very evil thing to tolerate a lack of holiness within the body of Christians. You can't do it. It will spread. It's like a little leaven, a little yeast, the Bible says you put a little bit of yeast in a big old lump of dough, and then the whole thing's going to be leavened before long. You, you can't keep just a little section leavened and the whole rest of the bread's unleavened. You don't have a half-leavened, half-unleavened loaf once you cook it. A little yeast makes the whole thing leavened. A little sin begins to separate. And so the call to holiness is total separation from sin. Total war against sin, no peace with it. So let's think about this for just one second before we move to the last point. There is a good tolerance and a bad tolerance. I hope this is helpful to you as we live in a culture that's drunk on tolerance, (laughs) on all kinds of tolerance. Let me just show you the good kind of tolerance, okay? Because Jesus models it. Uh, Notice what he says there in uh, verse 21. This is the good kind of tolerance. I gave her time or space to repent. Good tolerance. This is the tolerance we want to have in the church. Uh, We welcome sinners. We are ourselves sinners. In the church, you will find, if the church is acting on the basis of grace, you will find plenty of time to repent, plenty of space. Jesus will give you that time and give you that space, and so will we. That's a good tolerance. Let me tell you another good tolerance. Embracing those who actually do repent of their sins without qualification. Uh, This is the embrace of the father of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable. That's good tolerance. Where even though the son had done terrible things, when he repented, he was embraced. And the dad didn't say, I'm embracing you halfway. He didn't say, you're back in, but I'm going to always remind you of the bad you did. He embraces him and forgets and doesn't ever bring up the bad that he did. And that's the way the church ought to operate. When a sinner repents, heaven rejoices. And so does the church. And when a sinner repents, we receive that sinner into our midst as a full member without any qualification. It doesn't matter what their sin was like, how bad it was. It doesn't matter if it's bigger than mine or bigger than yours. By my judgment, they are embraced. Those are the good kinds of tolerance. 
Room to repent, room to struggle, room to work things out with God, and then also an embrace when you repent. Here's the bad kind of tolerance, making peace with the sin itself. You can't do that. We can't do that. It's completely at odds with what God says. It is not loving to tell people that what God calls sin is not sin. It's not helpful to us to believe that what God calls sin is not sin. And so the kind of tolerance that Jesus says is wrong is when in any way in our own hearts or in our fellowship, we begin to call evil good and good evil. Let me ask you, this is a pointed question, and it might take you a little while to think about your answer. You may not know it off the top of your head, but think about it. What sin are you tolerating? What sin are you tolerating? You say, well, how do I know? Good place to start, the Ten Commandments. That's a great place to start. Go to the Ten Commandments. Which of those sins contained in the Ten Commandments are you tolerant of? Which, which of, or are you excusing away or explaining away as if it's not that important? That's the wrong kind of tolerance. Right? All kinds of violators of the Ten Commandments are up in this room this morning, including chiefly me. I violated just about all of them in different ways, whether in thought or in deed, in my lifetime. And yet, God gave me room to repent. He was tolerant. God embraced me when I repent. He embraces me still when I repent of my sin, and he does you too. But one thing he does not and will not do is say that any of those things are no longer right or are no longer wrong, and that you don't need to be cured of them by the power of Jesus Christ. You hear me? Very, very important. This is what Jesus wants to say to the church today as well as to the church at Thyatira. Don't you know there are churches that call evil good and good evil? It's true. There are churches that celebrate sin, what God calls sin. And y'all, it's not a new problem. It's not a 2022 problem. It was happening apparently in the year 90. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, it's not a modern problem. It's a human problem, which we can bring to Jesus. All right, let's look at the last thing. Jesus encourages them towards the means of holiness. There's a way that you and I can grow in holiness in our lives. And I love it. I love how Jesus puts it. Uh, we find it in verses 24 to 29. He says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira... Uh, who do not hold this teaching, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Apparently, this Jezebel, this woman was saying, hey, I'm going to teach you the deep things. Come to me and I'll teach you deeper truth. And Jesus kind of slyly says, yeah, she's teaching deep things all right, the deep things of Satan. But for those of you who haven't gone into that, to you I say this. Look at what it says. I do not lay on you any other burden. I love this. this is, I mean, this is Jesus saying, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, because it's easy and light. I'm not laying onto you impossible burdens. I'm not here to say, 
go think about 10 new things to do and five new strategies to be holy and go make up 10 new things to believe that you came up with in your own imagination. I'm not putting the onus on you. I'm not putting any burden on you. Here's what I'm saying. This is how you grow in holiness. Hold fast, verse 25, to what you already have until I come. The way to holiness, y'all, is not found through some new silver bullet no one's ever thought of before. There are no silver bullets. There is no like way that we're going to discover today that hasn't been already given to us in Scripture that's going to make us a holy church or make you a holy person. What is there? There's only what God has already delivered to each one of His people in His Word and by His Spirit. Here's the problem. Here's why I'm not all that holy and why you're not all that holy. You haven't laid hold of what he's already given you. It's not that you haven't thought of something new. It's not that the church hasn't reinvented itself for a new age. That would actually be a bad thing for the church to reinvent itself. Since Jesus was the original inventor. Be kind of insulting to Jesus. Here's what the problem is. The church is not taking Jesus up on what's already been delivered. So Jesus says to Thyatira, do it, lay hold. I love that word, lay hold. It literally means to seize, to, to pounce on with almost like a, it's almost a violent word. In fact, it's, it's used when the soldiers came and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. They laid hold on him. They seized him. It's violent. Jesus says, if you want to grow as a church in holiness, violently Throw yourself into the things I've given you. Throw your whole self into it. Throw yourself into my word. Throw yourself into prayer. Throw yourself into worship. Throw yourself into applying the, the truth of baptism and, the, and communion to your life. Throw yourself into the pattern of fellowship and discipline that I've laid out in the church. Throw yourself into those ordinary things. They're not, they're not humanly invented things. They're, they're ordinary, God-given things that don't change. Throw yourself into those things and you will grow. Your latter works will exceed your first. But if you let those things lay on the side, if you listen to the voices like the woman Jezebel who says, here's a new thing, here's a deep thing, Here's a new idea. Here's a new strategy. Uh, you're going to lose. Your latter works will not be greater than your first. I love this. I don't know if you love it, but I love the fact that it's not a new highway that we have to build to get to heaven. It's just we got to get on the one already been laid down by Jesus, and we got to walk it with all our heart. We don't have to build our way to heaven. We don't have to climb a ladder. We don't have to blaze a trail through a thick forest. The road is already there. The king's highway is laid out. He's already paved it. He, he already every day does what he has to do to keep it clear. All we got to do is find our way back to it and get on it. That's how holiness grows. It takes tenacity. Yes, it takes... I mean, that's why he says, seize it, you know, go with violence. It takes a lot of effort to walk the king's highway, but it's an effort that at every step of the way, he's promised to provide you. He's promised to be with you. He's promised to give you the strength to take every next step. 
no matter how hard that step might seem to you now, he's promised to give that to you. What a joy. What a joy. Now notice, this is the last thing. Uh, Jesus makes this astounding promise, and we have to notice it, because it's one of the things that Jesus uses to encourage us to simply seize what he's already given. He says there in verse 26, To the one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, the one who stays on the highway that I've already laid down, that's what he means by keeps my works, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them and break them in peace. In other words, he's going to share in my power. He's going to share in my rule. And, verse 28, I will even give him the morning star. You say, well, what is the morning star? In the book of Revelation, the morning star is a symbol of Jesus. Go to Revelation 22, you'll see it. The morning star is Jesus himself. Jesus says, if you will throw yourself into what I've already given you, you don't have to reinvent it, just get on the highway. If you'll do that, I will give you a share in my rule over the whole world, and I will even give you my very self in complete, completely. I won't hold anything back. I'll give you all of me. But here's what I'm calling you to do. Give me all of you. Be holy, even as I am holy. I set myself apart. I sanctify myself for you. Sanctify yourself for me. This is the way the covenant relationship with God works. It's not that we're saved by works. We're not. We're only saved by grace. But y'all, we are saved for good works. We are. We're not saved by being holy, but we are saved in order to be holy. And nobody who, who is not walking the path of holiness can claim to be saved. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. This is why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, I have this one thing against you. You tolerate. You tolerate sin. And that's the one thing that can do you in. Not just individually, but that can do the whole church in when toleration becomes more important in your eyes than holiness itself.